0: My own observation would be that one of the biggest disconnects that we're actually seeing is between federal policy and ambition, and then what's going on on the ground uh, in sort of the real worlds of, of energy. In this case, uh, energy delivery on the on the electricity and gas side. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to you know to ensure that we've got more alignment, try to foster greater alignment where there is federal investment and there will be federal investment, ensuring that that's done in a way that's actually aligning with needs. Thank you.
1: Welcome to The Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 061, number 61 of The Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the electricity sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having on the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee during a taxi ride over dinner or stuck in an airport departure lounge. This podcast was recorded live and in 3D at Electricity Canada's 2022 Regulatory Forum in early May which we hold in conjunction with CAMPUT, the Association of Canadian Regulators, annual conference. We had recently released a report, Net Zero, an International Review of Energy Delivery System Policy and Regulation for Canadian Energy Decision Makers, jointly with the Canadian Gas Association and with the support of Natural Resources Canada. The principal authors of the report Monica Gattinger and Michael Cleland joined me for a conversation about the findings and recommendations of the report. We discussed learnings from experiences in UK, Western Australia, and New York State, who pays what, when, and how for net zero, and their recommendation for the creation of a national regulatory task force. We closed the conversation with some audience questions and also include a book recommendation from Mike. Monica gave me her book recommendation on episode 53, and I'm just at the final chapters of that book. Here is my conversation with Monica Gattinger and Michael Cleland, recorded in Vancouver, early May 2022. We're joined by Monica Gattinger of University of Ottawa, uh, Mike Cleland, who is uh, with positive energy, uh, but Mike, uh, I've known for many, many, many years, Mike was previously at the Canadian Gas Association, the Canadian Electricity Association, Natural Resources Canada, and so we're glad that you are both able to, uh, to join us for this conversation this afternoon, and uh, I wanted to chat a little bit about the report itself. Uh, and so, uh, let's begin with what are the big takeaways? You know, you looked at UK, Western Australia, New York State. What did you learn about these jurisdictions uh, and their path to, to to net zero?
0: Great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Francis. Uh, I want to begin by thanking Electricity Canada uh, and the Canadian Gas Association for the opportunity to work. On this project, we really uh, we really enjoyed it. Also, want to thank the researchers uh, who worked on this. So our international case leads: Catherine Porter uh, in the United Kingdom, Andrew Pickford in Western Australia. Bob Yardley, John Stewart, and Jim Coyne, who was here over the last couple of days uh, from Concentric uh, Energy Advisors in uh, New York State, and Dr. Patricia Larkin, who is on the Canadian side of the team and is watching uh, right now on the hybrid side of things. Um, So I want to begin, I guess, just by saying that uh, I would encourage everyone to read the report. There is a lot in there. We can really only scratch uh, the surface in our discussion here today. But I think it crystallizes a lot of what we've heard over the last few days at Campit as well as uh, in the last couple of panels at, at this session. So I think I'd say that, that you know, the biggest takeaway uh, for us is that all of these jurisdictions as uh, here in Canada are really just starting on their path to net zero. Uh, and so far, not surprisingly, nobody's batting a thousand. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't learn from other jurisdictions, and that's, you know, the good the bad uh, and the ugly. So lots of things in the report. I really just want to point to maybe three key areas, Francis, and we can dig into them and, and others in the conversation. I think the first is to say that you know, all jurisdictions, and we heard this on the last panel, are really trying to think through how do you navigate planning in what are fundamentally market-based systems. You know, so as somebody who's studied energy for the last number of decades, it's really striking to me that over the course of the 1980s and 1990s, you know, governments were getting out of the energy space, right? Deregulation, privatization, electricity restructuring, trade liberalization, take, uh, take your pick. And now they're coming back in as a result of climate and they're coming back in hard. Um, so I think about it as, you know, sort of this shift from hidden hand to, to, to heavy hand. Um, And as we've heard uh, in the last uh, couple of panels, there's a really strong need there then when it comes to policy uh, for clarity, for coherence, Dave Nicolishan was talking about that on the last panel, Uh, and for certainty, Uh, not only for investors, but also for communities and and for citizens, as well as for cooperation between different jurisdictions, and we heard that loud and clear on the last panel uh, as well. I think the second thing that really came through uh, in all of these jurisdictions is the fundamental importance of taking integrated approaches to these issues, so approaches that integrate, yes, emissions reductions, but also energy imperatives. And for us, of course, this is uh, affordability, but it's also what we referred to in the report uh, as system integrity, so the reliability uh, of our energy delivery systems, their safety, uh, their resilience. And this comes into costs, and I know we're going to get into that in a little bit, but uh, I'll leave that aside for the moment. And then the third thing uh, that uh, really came through strongly in all the cases is the importance of what we refer to as whole-of-system thinking. Right, so looking at the implications of decisions on the, on the energy system uh, as a whole, and this is where the importance of results based approaches uh, comes to the top. You know, the, at the end of the day, this is about emissions reductions. Uh, so this study, as you know, Francis was not just looking at electricity, it was also looking at natural gas and gas delivery systems. And so the, the opportunities there for system optimization, which doesn't often get uh, talked about as much as, uh, as as it could, and the importance of, invo- of avoiding technological uh, determinism uh, mm-hmm. as well. Whole of system thinking also applies though, and the last panel was a great illustration of this, to machinery of government. So it's thinking through at single levels of government, but also across levels of government, making sure that we've got that coherence between policy through to planning, to regulation, uh, and to individual project uh, uh, decisions. And the role of regulators uh, emerges really um, strongly in, uh, in that context. Now we recognize that you know, we're not going to get perfect whole-of-system thinking, but we can sure as heck do a lot better than we're doing now.
1: And we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to some of those issues, and what you and I have been discussing over the last couple of days, the, the more wicked issues tend to, to fall into, into that area. But maybe turn to Mike. Uh, so what about, what about Canada specifically? Um, you know, how does, how does our very specific constitutional uh, arrangement affect things?
2: Francis, I'm gonna, let, me, let me get to that in, in a second, uh, but just maybe to expand a little bit on, on a couple of things that Monica just said. Um, Uh, She talked about how, you know, the jurisdictions we looked at are just now, actually, unbelievably, since we've been talking about this since Rio in 1992. But in a sense, just embarking on really getting serious about climate change, even though we've been doing things on it for years. And what what I'm struck by, and, and I'm struck by in the context of Canada as well, is in particular understanding it from that downstream energy delivery customer perspective and i mean that with respect to both the gas uh, and and the electric electric systems um, we've tended to ignore that we've tended to focus on the upstream uh, decarbonization we have tended to talk about pipelines we tend to talk about oil and gas um, and we tend to forget about customers um, and so, you know, that that's something mm-hmm. we we really need to think about, and <laughs> that has implications for yeah. constitutional juris, jurisdiction. Um, and um, understanding that downstream system and how it actually operates in the untidy world of all of those customers is going to be going to be a critical factor. And of course, that does take you to the question of where's the jurisdiction lie, and indeed it does lie for the most part at at, at the provincial level. But maybe more important than um, than jurisdiction is who knows the best what's going on. Who knows about local conditions? Uh, who knows about the different conditions that you find in different jurisdictions? Uh, who has the most expertise and knowledge? Um, and frankly, that press for the most part at the uh, at at the provincial level. So. Um, It seems pretty clear that the the provinces are going to have to take a very, very big role. We can talk about what should be the federal role, because I think there's some important ones um, and ones that we get to in in our report. And finally, and this goes to the role of the respective jurisdictions, um, people have talked about we need a plan. Um, I would argue we don't need a plan, we need planning. Uh, And there's a big difference between between the two because one is a plan It's a thing on on, on a shelf. Mm -hmm. The other is an ongoing process of thinking it through and adapting uh, As we go along and there I think there's a huge role for uh, The federal provincial territorial uh, governments as well as other as other uh, uh, Jurisdictional entities such as indigenous governments municipal Mm -hmm. governments and uh, and thirty third-party stakeholders.
1: Okay. Yeah all right, well, you mentioned customers. Let me, let me read a quote out of the report. Um, there is a vital need to expose consumers and citizens to the realities of energy transformation, costs and risks, as well as opportunities and benefits. The questions surrounding who pays what, when, and how for net zero are pivotal. So how would you do that? It sounds, it sounds simple.
0: Sure. Nothing to um, it. You know, as, as uh, we often say, you know, it's it's uh, not complicated but complex. Yeah. Right. And so I'm really glad you picked up on this, Francis. It's it's hugely uh, important. We had a number of strategic vi- advisors working with us on this project, bringing um, policy regulatory uh, industry and legal um, perspectives to the table. And so uh, names that many of you would know, Dave Morton, who's here in this room, uh, Lisa DeMarco uh, from Ontario, Brian Purchase, and, uh, and Doug Stout. And you know, one of the things that came forward frequently and loudly in our analysis uh, and discussions was the importance of cost. Hmm. Uh, to the point that we developed this tagline that you just uh, read out of who pays what, when, and how. Mm-hmm. and That is, I think, a, you know, something that we have been talking about over the last number of days in a variety of, uh, of different se- sessions, and yet cost has largely been absent uh, from our, certainly from our political debates mm-hmm. and from public debates uh, on these issues, but it's gonna be f- so important Uh, to the level of success Canada and various jurisdictions in Canada will have when it comes to achieving uh, climate ambitions. And I want to just, you know, somebody earlier in in the week uh, at Camp mentioned that, and it it just really got my goat, they said, you know, if if people who raise concern about costs and how much this is going to cost are climate insincere. And I actually think that's a really unhelpful idea um, there are a lot of different ideas out there right now about what costs are going to be, and I suspect we would have a difficult time coming to an agreement in this room. But we need the debate mm-hmm. over that, and we need to be thinking um, very carefully about who pays what, uh, when, and how. You know, we do public opinion polling research. Citizens want climate action. This is not, you know, this is not has uh, become table stakes. Um, but how much are they willing to pay for it personally? I think this is where we're going to start to see uh, the rubber uh, hitting the road. And increasingly, I don't think it's going to be an academic uh, discussion anymore. I mean, we heard, I don't know if the fellow from Offgem is still here, but we heard about what's been going on in the United Kingdom. You know, and you've got a regulator saying, we expect deaths next winter uh, as a result of, of fuel poverty. You know, next winter, that's a long time away. So this is a, a you know, in, in a jurisdiction with some major supply challenges. Um, you know, there are Senses, there is going to be a great awakening among customers and among citizens to, um, you know, to the costs of transition, and governments then are going to be increasingly pressed to answer the question of who pays the costs. Is it utilities? Is it investors? Is it citizens? Is it governments? You know, all the the, 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 uh, the usual suspects. When do they pay them? Do they pay them now? Is it their grandkids paying them? You know, some other, uh, some other approach. And then how do they pay them? You know, through the rate base, if so, how? The tax base, sustainable finance, you know, all the, the usual suspects. And of course, the reality is gonna be some combination of all of the above. So what do we do? Well, first, I think, Governments need to start preparing citizens for this. It's like, I think about, you know, when I take my kid to the dentist, the first time to the dentist, right? Oh, it's gonna be so much fun. Um, But then when you get a little bit closer, you need to prepare, that individual for some of the things that might happen that are absolutely for their own good. And we all want these things to happen. We all want emissions reductions, but there are going to be uh, costs associated uh, with this. So we've talked a lot about opportunities and about benefits, but I don't think there has been a lot of discussion uh, about uh, about risks and about costs. Um, and I think you know that's something that governments, and I recognize that's very difficult to do but I think the risks to, of not doing it are um, you know, very virulent political backlashes to emissions reductions, and we're certainly seeing this uh, in the UK at the moment. Second, uh, I would say, you know, and this goes to Mike, Mike's comment around planning, that who pays what, when, and how, that's gonna have to be integrated uh, into our planning uh, processes, whether it's at the policy level, uh, regulation programs, uh, individual program. Uh, individual projects and the like. And I think, you know, that's not news to anybody in this room, right? Regulators get this, industry gets this. I think where there's sometimes been a disconnect uh, is with that, uh, with that political uh, level. And then third, I think we need to, you know, it comes back to this idea of taking a systems approach to the issue. So yes, emission, uh, emissions reductions, but also approaches that are going to foster investor confidence, Fiscal sustainability, which is something we don't talk about nearly enough, uh, and energy affordability, and all the while maintaining the integrity of uh, of the system. And you know, again, we recognize this is a very tall order. Uh, but I think failing to achieve or at least to try in that respect uh, will likely be leading to failure on emissions reductions as well.
1: And the longer we delay the getting to that day of reckoning, the Higher likelihood it is that it'll well, be challenged. You know,
0: so it's interesting you use that word reckoning. So, it, you know, and I've thought on this for quite a bit. I prefer to think of it as a great awakening of, of customers. It will become a reckoning if it's not managed mm-hmm. appropriately. I think the awakening is good. There's actually opportunities there as customers become more aware. To learn more about their energy systems.
1: I, I guess I misheard. I thought you said green <laughs> reckoning, hope it's not which, a reckoning is, which, uh... which must have been the filter because I've been <laughs> yeah so much in this space. Let's talk a little bit maybe about the urgency, um, urgency to to act. And uh, Mike, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about this? Um, how do we reconcile the urgency to act on net zero? with the reality of diverse clean energy resource endowments across the country, different legacy energy systems, and the fact that many net-zero technologies are still, let's face it, maturing or in development.
2: I I do want to just come back to this question of cost for a second, because I think think it's really, really vital. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember back in the 90s, back in the days of Kyoto, when we, we were debating this, and no one wanted to talk about the fact that that would entail some hard choices. You couldn't talk about that, because that would scare people off. Well, I guess we didn't scare people off, but we also didn't make the hard choices and we didn't do anything close to what Kyoto required, and we seem to have kept up that habit for uh, for all this time. So maybe, maybe it's worth thinking about a different approach. Um, I'm trying to imagine uh, Winston Churchill getting up in the House of Commons in, in, uh, in 1940 and saying, I have nothing to give you but uh, benefits, opportunities, and jobs, I'm not 100% convinced that that would have uh, actually won the Second World War. You gotta talk to people and treat them as adults. Um, on the question of urgency, um, maybe I- I'm gonna say something that, Francis, I'm gonna, I'm, this may be unspeakable uh, to, 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 to lots of people, but um, let's make sure that we make the distinction between urgency and importance um and we when we talk about the climate crisis we talk about climate emergency and of course that necessarily uh gets us into into thinking about about uh, about uh, urgency um but we do know that rushing into some of these things can mean much higher costs than if we take it a more more judicious approach letting the technologies Uh, mature, and we've got actual real-life examples of that in in the Ontario electricity system, for example. Um, We also know that in terms of actually implementation and operations, there are inevitably going to be glitches, and we're going to have to take that on, on board, think about how we come at it incrementally. And for any federal public servants who are familiar with the Phoenix pay system, you may know something about that. These are big, complex systems, and we have to come at them uh, by, by degrees, learning, learning as we go along, and it may end up taking longer than we wish. One other thing that will take longer than we wish, and other panelists have talked about this, is you've got to bring the people with you. Um, you've got to be out there talking to the communities, you've got to be bringing them along, you've got to be thinking about what are the implications for those communities, they've got to see what it means, uh, and that inevitably takes a great, great deal of time. Um, I guess what, what I, think, I think Monica would agree with me on this, because uh, we've, we've written this and some of the stuff we've done in the, in the past, is we need change, but we need durable change. And the only way we're gonna get durable change is if we take into account uh, a, lot, a lot of those sorts of complexities. It's not as if we shouldn't act, we need to act, carbon taxes, various regulatory standards, but we also need to build the institutions, we need to build the public support, and we need to build the capabilities that allow us to do it well.
1: Let's see, um, let's make sure we bring the people with us, let's not build a Phoenix pay system. Uh, <laughs> 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 but in the report, um, th- there is uh, outlined a roadmap, uh, of next steps when it comes to energy and regulatory policy. Um, so based upon this this roadmap, uh, what sh- who should be doing what, and what are the timelines?
0: Um, sure. So again, I think it's important to underscore this. A report was not intended to say, here's the answer for Canada. Uh, it was A, to look at what's happening in international jurisdictions Hold in on, terms hang, of… Hang on a second now.
1: I, I think yeah. When we commissioned the report, we wanted the answer. <laughs> Here's the answer for Canada.
0: <laughs> and do it in you know six months. Or That's a while. right. We
1: gave you the answer, Francis.
2: Don't worry about it.
0: you read. People should know there was a very tight timeline on this project. We had some very committed folks uh, working with us. And again, read the report. It's uh, the the international case studies are positively phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, part of our charge uh, was to identify a process for Canada to actually identify um, ways in which that energy delivery system um, decision-making should, should be reformed. So what we've recommended uh, is the creation of a task force, time-limited, so this gets to your, to your question, to help Canada move, you know, faster and smarter in a more thoughtful uh, fashion on these issues. So at present, There really is, you know, people might disagree with this, and happy to hear this in the Q&A portion, but there really is no single table uh, that would be positioned on its own uh, to do this well. Um, But crucially, we're not calling for the creation of a new permanent body. This is not about uh, institution building in that way. This would be a time-limited task force that would mobilize and catalyze cross-jurisdictional And intersectoral, so it's not just governments, uh, learning collaboration and and coordination. So, what would it look like? A two to three year process that gets underway now, right? There are provinces and territories that are already working uh, on these issues. And, you know, they should be coming together with the federal government, uh, with industry, with indigenous and municipal governments, with other uh, stakeholders. And, you know, again, the idea here is not to say, hold the phone, everybody. We're going to do a task force, and you know, put pause on anything that you're doing. Not, not, nothing uh, of the sort. This is very much about trying to foster and catalyze faster movement and and mutual learning uh, across the country. Crucially, it's also not about imposing a one best way. This is not an exercise to say thou shalt, you know, X, Y, Z in all the jurisdictions across the country, we recognize uh, very uh, clearly that uh, um, it's gonna look different uh, across the country. But really it's about accelerating, you know, collective uh, and, and, and individual action uh, across the country, it's, so it's mutual learning. But it's also shared problem solving. This isn't just, you know, best practice uh, sharing. It can also include joint, uh, joint action. So who does what? Well, I think as Mike uh, pointed out, you know, provincial Ontario territorial governments are really gonna be the key uh, actors uh, in this space given their constitutional uh, jurisdiction. And when we say governments, we mean policymakers. So one of the observations I would make, you know, is that over the last number of days, we've had you know, great representation from the regulatory community, great representation from industry a little bit less representation from the policy side and that's going to be so crucial on these issues as uh, as we've been talking about so that's you know on the government uh, side of things provincial and territorial regulators also you know for all of the obvious reasons are crucial players they you know they know the systems they know the economic uh, social and environmental uh, dimensions of, of reform they you know are well positioned to identify where some of the Regulatory barriers uh, are to reform uh, as well. The federal government uh, obviously needs to be uh, there as well, and this is about, again, it's not about, uh, you know, we're Ottawa, we're here to help you, I don't think that's the approach that we're calling for whatsoever, but more in terms of, you know, accompanying that process, ensuring that the policies, programs, and expenditures, crucially, uh, of the federal government are actually, you know, supporting, not thwarting, uh, energy delivery uh, system reform. Indigenous governments and organizations are also gonna be really crucial. I've actually been in conference mode since like Sunday of last week, so it's been a while. I've been in Vancouver. The first conference I was at was the First Nations Major Projects Coalition event. And that event, you know, the momentum in indigenous communities and among indigenous governments for um, you know, emissions reducing major projects is, is real and growing. Uh, clearly a, a strong role for indigenous governments. Industry, of course, don't, you know, don't worry. <laughs> Definitely need to to be at the table. Again, without investment and industry engagement, none of this is gonna be possible. I mean, it fundamentally comes down to, to, to industry. And then civil society as well as Mark, uh, sorry, as Mike has already, uh, has already alluded to. And so again, just to kind of, um, reiterate, this is not just about best practice sharing, it can certainly be a part of it, but it's about really supporting a better, more informed, and hopefully through the process, more accelerated uh, action uh, in Canada on uh, these issues. If it's done well, it can actually surface some of the challenges earlier rather than later and address them proactively rather than being sort of caught on our heels uh, as things go off the rails. Mm-hmm.
1: Mike, the, uh, the, the most recent federal budget uh, had more of a regional approach, or at least that seemed to be signaled in the budget by the government in terms of working with provinces and territories on energy system planning. Um, is this at odds with your recommendation for the creation of a national regulatory task force? Um,
2: it, it, it doesn't need to be, and in fact, it sounds in some ways like the federal government's moving in the right direction when they say working with. The provinces yeah. and, and and the territories, and that's that's a pretty crucial word. Um, when you when you when you're my age, you get to tell a few war stories from way back when, and so indulge me. Um, I remember I was a I was a senior federal official back in the 1990s, and I remember one time I can't remember which province uh, I showed up in the provincial capital and, and uh, met with some of my counterparts uh, from from the province and the meeting opened with uh, my provincial counterpart saying well so you've come out to tell us what to do (laughs) Um, and i was so taken aback i said well no actually i came out to find out what you're doing and make sure that i understand it Um, he was so taken aback that we actually had quite a good conversation Um, the federal government i think one of the things particularly in the downstream energy space where um I know this uh, because of my own experience. Uh, the federal government doesn't instinctively understand it. It doesn't come easily. It's complex, it's far away, and it's out of its jurisdiction. So uh, learning uh, itself and making sure that uh, it adapts its policies so that they're consistent with the kinds of things that the provinces, and for that matter, other other uh, uh, local governments are are, are doing, it's a, it's a two-way street and it can be a two-way street uh, provided that uh, all governments come at it um, with the, uh, with, with the right, uh, right frame of mind. Um, and, and you know with that, and uh, going, going to Monica's point about t- taking the time to think it through um, doesn't mean we have to take more time overall. Uh, it means that we uh, can maybe get it right early on, make fewer really bad mistakes, uh, do fewer things to cause uh, public backlash. And again, we've seen that uh, in a variety of jurisdictions when, when you when you rush into it. Uh, and maybe a way to think about this and something that the task force, if we g- get this task force off the ground, um, can do is is help, let's say instill a slightly different way of thinking. And, and uh, maybe a way of, of putting it is, um, winning the race may be more likely to go to the tortoise than the hare, uh, and at least it's worth being open to that possibility.
1: All right, um, I know the, somebody was giving me a signal that, that we're running long, but I don't need 15 minutes for closing comments. Uh, so so I'm gonna take a couple of my uh, t- a bit of my time for closing comments and just see if there's any questions um, in the room um, uh, but before that actually Vanna, you can see if anybody has a question but I got a question from Mike um, and and that is uh, it's a question that I, I ask people on the podcast um, the flux capacitor. Monica uh, was on the podcast uh, a month or two ago, and in fact, the book that Monica recommended—I'm in the middle of reading right now. Uh, so, thank you for that recommendation for *American War*. Mike, do you have a book recommendation that we should add to our our, our book club list? Is there a, is there a book that you uh, think folks should be uh, should be reading? Um,
2: yeah, there's one that I w- would recommend that people think about. I, I just finished it a little little while ago. Um, and I apologize, I can't remember the name of the author, but the title of the book is uh, Prisoners of Geography. Uh, and what it is, is uh, is a fair, in fact, a very wide-ranging exploration of the geopolitical world uh, that we live in right now, but with a particular focus on how elements of geography and whether that's rivers or mountains or, or oceans or harbors or climate for that matter, um, have fundamentally shaped the geopolitical world that we live in, um, or in some cases, uh, it's been overcome by technology, but for for the most part has shaped that world and will shape it in many ways into the future. So a fun read, an easy read, uh, a different perspective on uh, geopolitics, which is something I'm sure most people in this room are interested in. Awesome,
1: great. Prisoner of geography, okay, thanks, Michael. Um, Vanna, we're, we're good? Okay, No. Oh, there's one question back here, uh, so we'll take, we'll take one question and then we'll look at, uh, look at wrapping this.
3: Thanks, uh, Andrew Pape Salmon from BC. I was just wondering if you could confirm that uh, this uh, body, that, the three-year task force, um, by necessity includes uh, the federal government, because I think we were he- hearing earlier about the role of the federal government fiscally. Um, and if so, what? Uh, there was an announcement about the Pan-Canadian Grid Council. Um, is that a possible fit? Uh, you know, when you lo- read the fine uh, lines, it it seems very focused on uh, you know getting grid connections between provinces and territories uh, that don't currently exist. Um, and an- another question is: Do we, are there examples of successful? cooperation between the federal government, the 13 provinces and territories, the industry players in other sectors in Canada, as opposed to other jurisdictions around the world. And one possible example is around uh, infrastructure. So federal-provincial infrastructure collaboration. Uh, It's it's an incredible system. It's been working for years. Um, Another example would be the Building Code and the Canadian Free Trade Agreement uh, has established a regulatory, regulatory Cooperation and Reconciliation Council. Uh, and uh, for the first time, uh, we, we saw an announcement from Ontario ag- agreeing that the Ontario Building Code will adopt uh, the federal national model standards. So I think we can learn from other sectors in, in this sector as opposed to, you know, bringing in maybe the UK model or whatever. I mean, I think we can learn from that as well. Thank you. Sure.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Great.
3: No. Uh,
1: great questions, Monica. Do you want to start? Off?
0: Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Great question. So, just to start on the federal government piece, y- yes. Uh, absolutely, the the federal government needs to be there. I think it, it needs to be there in the way that we've just been alluding to, which is sort of um, uh, as as an accompanier, as a convener, if and as uh, if and as appropriate, but with full recognition of the constitutional jurisdiction of the provinces uh, in uh, you know in in energy uh, in energy system delivery. But I think one of the key you know, challenges that we're facing uh, in Canada. Again, this report, as you know, was looking at international jurisdictions, so we didn't sort of canvas uh, what's happening domestically, but just my own observation would be that one of the biggest disconnects that we're actually seeing is between federal policy and ambition, and then what's going on on the ground uh, in sort of the real worlds of, of energy. In this case, uh, energy delivery on the on the electricity and gas side. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to you know to ensure that we've got more alignment, try to foster greater alignment where there is federal investment uh, and there will be federal investment, ensuring that that's done. You know. In a way, in a way that's actually aligning with uh, uh, aligning with needs. I think the other thing I would note, and then I'll pass it to Mike because he's probably got some thoughts as well. The other thing I would note is that you know, um, as governments, um, how shall we say? Um, disengaged uh, and, and restructured energy markets, and we, you know, develop sort of market-based systems. If we're now moving from, you know, market-based energy systems to policy-based market systems, um, we have a lot of policy capacity to build up. My background is in public administration, and and there's, you know, a tremendous amount of policy capacity loss just writ large uh, across uh, governments uh, over the last number of decades. So part of this is also, as Mike was alluding to, about uh, learning for all. Uh, For all jurisdictions, but I would say particularly at the federal level given that there has been quite a you know For all kinds of obvious reasons not a lot of engagement at that distribution uh, level whether it's for power or gas
2: Just to reinforce um, (laughs) The federal government needs to be there for a variety of reasons one thing that always worries me a little bit though is Inevitably when people say well, what's the role of the federal federal government? Um, It's immediately to open its wallet and send money um, yes, up to a point, but look at federal finances and ask yourself just how much room there's going to be when you're done with health care and all of, the, all of the other things. So it isn't just a matter of federal money. The federal government does have rules, and particularly if we go back upstream into the bulk transmission area and inter, and, and, and inter uh, cross-border relations with the U.S., or for that matter uh, interprovincial uh, transmission. You know the federal government actually does have a a, a, a uh, constitutional jurisdiction in that area. The question is should they use it, and if so, how do they use it um, so they need to there 's no question they need to be at the table and including for all the reasons that Monica cited and um, Andrew I loved your examples of past examples of of when actually it has worked um, and maybe we should look back in history a little bit and think about. Things like, you know, know, the Columbia River Treaty, where we had across Canada, Canada, U.S., and something involving involving British Columbia, other big infrastructure projects, um, healthcare, uh, places where governments actually have come together on big, complex problems and solved them, or at least come up with pretty good solutions, uh, ones that are, are legacies that we have today. I won't say that the healthcare system as we have today is necessarily entirely a good legacy, but a lot of it is. Um, and that came from that kind of cooperation. So really good question. We should probably look for more examples and say, well, why did they work or not?
1: Okay. All right. Please join me in in thanking uh, Monica and Mike uh, for capping uh, our afternoon. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca, and it includes links to organizations and reports we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out the Book Club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor, including Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Explain Everything About the World, recommended by Mike Cleland on today's podcast. Please tune in for future episodes of The Flux Capacitor, including a conversation with Electricity Canada's senior fellow, David McHenry, about the development of the Electricity Fundamentals in Canada course. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.